It is not immediately easy to discern why the announcement by combustible Shia cleric Moqtada al-Sadr that he intends to retire from Iraqi politics should occasion quite the uproar that it did. It is scarcely the first time he has pulled this stunt. Indeed, by some counts, it is perhaps the seventh. Nevertheless, it had an impact. Earlier this week, al-Sadr's adherents stormed Iraq's presidential palace, parliament building and other compounds within Baghdad's fortified green zone and fought running battles with Iraqi security services. At least 23 people were killed and hundreds injured. After an amount of this mayhem, al-Sadr appeared to think better of it. He asked his supporters to go home and apologised for the disturbances. I still believe that my supporters are disciplined and obedient. And if in the next 60 minutes they do not withdraw, including from the sit-in in Parliament, then I will abandon the supporters. All of which raised, once again, a question which has been a recurrent theme of Iraq's 21st century history. Who is Moqtada al-Sada anyway, and what does he think he's doing? Moqtada al-Sadr has, in many respects, spent his eventful life in the family business. The al-Sadrs have been prominent Shia figures for decades, often causing considerable trouble for the powers that happen to be, and as a consequence themselves. Prior to the toppling of Saddam Hussein by the US-led invasion of 2003, the al-Sadrs had acquired a hard-won reputation for bold opposition to the regime. In 1980, two of Moqtada's relatives, Grand Ayatollah Mohammed Bakir al-Sadr and Saida Amina bint al-Huda, were tortured and executed for their defiance, by some accounts, by Saddam Hussein personally. In 1999, Moqtada's immensely influential father, Grand Ayatollah Sayyid Mohammed al-Sadr, was shot dead along with two of Moqtada's brothers, presumably on Saddam Hussein's instructions. When America and its allies descended on Iraq in 2003, Moqtada al-Sadr was not quite 30, an angry young man, and it would turn out a vexingly determined one. He derived authority both from his family's reputation and from the fact that he, unlike a great many more senior Shia clerics returning from exile, had run the considerable risk of staying in Iraq throughout Saddam's rule. The assassination of Moqtada's father and brothers four years previously had left him heir to a network of Shia mosques, schools, courts, hospitals and charities. Al-Sadr was able to construct from these components a startlingly well-armed and well-organised militia, which he named the Mahdi Army, an alluringly messianic allusion to the 12th Imam, the figure believed by some Shia Muslims to be the figure who will arbitrate ultimate justice ahead of some variety of cleansing Armageddon. You can see the appeal. One of the Mahdi Army's heartlands was the enormous Shia slum in Baghdad, once known as Saddam City. It was rebranded as Sadr City. The US-led occupation wanted al-Sadr dead or alive, and the longer they got neither, the greater his luster grew. Al-Sadr's politics, then and since, have often seemed an ongoing enactment of the creed of Groucho Marx. Whatever it is, I'm against it. 
Al-Sadr was against the US occupation. He was against a variety of rival Shia clerics, at least one of whom, Abdul Majid Al-Khoi, he was accused of ordering the murder of. He was against Iran, whose suborning of Iraqi institutions since America's invasion has been a colossal subversion, barely disguised. And he has more recently been against a succession of admittedly hapless Iraqi governments. The Mahdi army looked to have been rolled up by a major Iraqi offensive in Sadr city and Basra in 2008, by which time al-Sadr had begun what would be a four-year exile in Iran. Al-Sadr, who may have more of a sense of humour than often seems apparent, stood his militia down and renamed them the Sariat al-Salam, or peace companies. Circa 2014, as Iraq was partially consumed by Islamic State, he stood them back up. The peace companies played their part in liberating Iraq from Islamic State's demented theocracy. It has never been entirely clear, however, what al-Sadr sees as the end point of his compulsive resistance. Ahead of last year's general election in Iraq, he declared that his Sadrist movement would boycott it, then changed his mind, won the largest share of seats, though he did not stand for one himself, then eventually ordered all 73 of his MPs to resign. Iraq does not need the formation of a government but an effective government whose majority serves its people, return its glory and obedience to God. So let our beloved Sadrist bloc members write their resignations from Parliament and submit them to the presidency of the Parliament. Al-Sadr appears to have calculated that he is actually more powerful if he doesn't hold formal office. He might be right, but it is at least possible that he is gripped by the fear that often lurks somewhere inside revolutionaries. The fear, the abject terror of responsibility. Protesting, rebelling, making grandiloquent speeches, perched atop barricades, generally shaking a righteous fist, all tremendous fun and an immensely gratifying generator of applause. Actually doing the difficult, painstaking, tedious work of governing? Less so. No delirious mob ever chanted the name of the council official who ensures that their bins get collected. Moqtada al-Sadr, for his manifold retirements, is not an old man. He recently turned all of 48. He has time yet to decide whether he wants to leverage his considerable support into a serious role in fixing his broken country, or whether he wishes to be remembered as that most tiresome variety of career contrarian, the posturing blowhard who only wants the fight, not the win. For Monocle24, I'm Andrew Muller.